Thanks for joining us for the 2018 7th Annual Stroke Conference, The Pulse of Stroke Rehabilitation. This conference is sponsored by Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. In this podcast lecture, Christine Morrow and Charlotte Roski presented Behavioral Changes Following Stroke, Strategies for Successful Participation. Christina is an advanced clinical specialist and Charlotte is a nurse manager. Both are from Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. This presentation was recorded on Thursday, November 1st, 2018 at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, Saddlebrook Campus, 300 Market Street, Saddlebrook, New Jersey. For more information about Kessler Foundation Research or Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, click on the links within the description of this podcast. Let's listen in. Charlotte and I, we both run or help to run the behavior management program here at this campus. Um, so that's what we're going to be talking about today. Behavioral challenges following a stroke and strategies for successful participation. We have no conflicts of interest. So in this presentation, we're going to be discussing the prevalence of agitation following a stroke. Um, we'll be reviewing some commonly seen agitated behaviors after a stroke. Uh, we'll be reviewing kind of in-depth our behavior management process here at this campus. We'll review the ABC method for behavior modification. And then finally, in the end, we're going to go over a couple of case studies and actually create um, some behavior plans for those patients. There you go. Um, <laughs> I love that picture. <laughs> How many people here have worked with a patient who has been agitated or had behavioral issues? Everybody. Oh, okay, good. Um, and have uh, any of these patients been um, stroke patients? Right, okay, cool. So I feel like a lot of times when people hear the term agitation, they automatically think of traumatic brain injuries. But I mean, as you've shown, we all know that that's not always the case. Um, stroke patients do oftentimes exhibit um, agitated behavior. Um, in fact, there are studies, recent studies are showing that up to 35% of stroke survivors um, have some agitation within that first year. Um, now, these particular studies, um, they're looking at agitation as being defined as some of the more combative, aggressive behaviors. But in reality, we know that you can be agitated and not be demonstrating those behaviors. So the kicking, punching, you know, typical what people think as being um, combative behavior. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. Um, but so you've worked with these patients and you know how difficult caring for them can be. Um, it impacts their participation, um, compliance with medications. Um, caregiver um, support is oftentimes a big issue with these patients, as well as discharge disposition. So are there any indicators that can help us predict who's more likely to be agitated? So is there anything that if this and the patient is definitely going to be agitated? Um, the answer is no. Um, but there are some studies that are showing some trends um, of predicting factors. So for example, if a patient had a previous stroke, they might be more likely to exhibit agitation. Um, cognitive impairments, the more um, cognitively impaired the patient is, the more likely they may be to have behavioral issues. Um, delirium, does any, do you guys screen for delirium in your hospitals? You, does anyone, yeah. Um, so and what do you use? What does anybody use for their delirium? This gentleman, he's talking. What do you use for your screening for delirium? 
<laughs> what do you use for your delirium screening? Yeah. There's a geriatric protocol. So they're pretty involved with it. Okay. I'm not sure what the exact so yeah, delirium, I feel like, can really be its own in-service, so we won't get into that too much, but um, one specific type, the hyperactive type of delirium, is characterized by aggressive behaviors and motor restlessness. Um, location, is there a certain area brain of the brain, if you have um, a stroke here or an injury here, that you're definitely going to be agitated? There's not just one area of the brain um, that can give us that you know, predicting factor. Um, Tang and his colleagues did a study last year. Um, their results showed that limbic regions, temporal lobes, inferior, inferior parietal lobes, and occipital lobes all might be an indicator of um, possibly the patient being agitated. I mean, that's kind of all over. Um, but um, what we do see a little bit more is um, consistent patterns of behavior depending on which area of the brain has been affected. All right. So what can we expect? What might a patient present with um, after following a left brain stroke? So left stroke, right hemi, if they have hemiplegia. Aphasia, yeah. Anything else? Apraxia, yeah. Good. Um, so these patients that experience aphasia and apraxia, a lot of times we'll see with them the more the frustrated behaviors, right? So if I know if I wasn't able to express myself or I wasn't able to understand what someone was telling me, that might lead me to be more frustrated. Um, same with the apraxia. Uh, these patients can also be uh, more compulsive. What about a right brain stroke? I didn't hear. Neglect, yeah, good. Impulsive, yeah. Our left hemis. Uh, they tend to be more emotional, um, distractible, poor judgment. Um, they can be confused. Um, like you said, spatial perceptual problems, with, uh, they're also impacting our safety issues. Um, and a lot of them really have poor insight into their deficits. So again, that can be another frustrating issue. So earlier we mentioned that agitation isn't just the aggressive, combative behaviors. Um, Really, it's an excess of behaviors that occur in an altered state of consciousness. So all of these behaviors up here, which are listed, these are taken from the um, agitated behavior scale. Are you guys familiar with that scale? Has anyone done the, the ABS? No? OK. So it's, uh, it's an awesome scale. We do this here. It's a super simple screen. But it basically just breaks down all the different types of behaviors. Um, we can go through them, but the, the take-home message here is agitation is more of a, an umbrella term, the term agitation, and then all of these types of behaviors fall underneath that. Um, so if you're demonstrating any of these behaviors, you would be considered um, agitated. So distractibility, um, impulsivity, so that's you know acting first, thinking later. That's the patient that um, is jumping up out of their wheelchair before you stop moving it. Um, not necessarily just because you get up out of your chair without assistance doesn't make you impulsive. Um, but a more consistent pattern of, of doing things before actually th thinking them through. Um, patients that demonstrate a low frustration tolerance who are violent or threatening violence. You guys heard that behavior response team upstairs that they just called. <laughs> That's what was going on. Um, explosive or unpredictable anger. Rocking, rubbing, or moaning. 
pulling at tubes or restraints, so pulling at the trach, pulling at the peg, wandering behaviors, motor restlessness, perseveration, rapid, loud, or excessive talking, sudden changes in mood, emotional ability, and self-abusiveness. So I have a little video here. Um, so based off of that list of um, terms that we just went through, I want you to just take a, take a look and we can kind of talk about what behaviors that we're seeing here. Again, this is, you know, he's, he's not, you know, combative or aggressive, but we are seeing some stuff here. So let's, let's take a look. Oh, Lou showed me how to do this and sorry. Okay. Is it this one? Yeah, there's not just like a play. Can you get to the bottom of it? Up here. Is it not important, is it? It is, yeah. No. No. Sorry, guys. No. Sorry. That's okay. Do you have it saved on? No, it's it worked. He he tried it. It worked. He said, mm -hmm. "I don't know how to." There. The um, top room. Let's just see if it goes. Okay. The okay. Uh, top room. Got it. Thanks, Tim. Ready? All right. So I'm just asking him to go to the. A room. Do it a couple of feet? Yep, yeah, push the chair a couple of feet. Well, you can't do that because it's locked. This, uh, this goddamn chair is pretty nice. Go. Okay. Okay. Okay, hold on. We gotta lock them. Lock them first. So you get the gist of it. So I had asked him to push his chair to the room um, in case you missed that first part. So what type of behaviors are we seeing here? Impulsive. Yeah, cursing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, perfect. And then also I would say poor judgment too. So he, um, he felt that the chair was, he tried to stand, the chair was unlocked, he proceeded. So someone with impaired judgment is someone who um, really doesn't have a clear indication of when they feel something, they don't feel what they're doing is unsafe, they just proceed. Um, cool, so once we have identified that a patient is having some kind of behavioral deficits, um, what do we do, like so when they come from you guys, you're uh, mostly acute care, is that right? No? Acute care? Where does everybody work? About half and half. Half and half? Okay. Okay, so how, what do you do when they come to us now? That's Charlotte. So, I'm the manager of the traumatic brain injury unit here. Oh, that's probably a good idea. Um, so, upon admission to Kessler, I usually, um, with a behavior patient, uh, I either reach out to the nurse liaison, they reach out to me from one of the acute care hospitals, or they will send me a behavioral screen, which is in front of you, 
we gave them out. Um, and I'll show you that shortly. So um, if I get a behavioral screen emailed to me, usually uh, the liaison from the acute care hospital will fill it out. And after that, at that point, I will reach out to them and we'll have a discussion as to what kind of safety measures are appropriate for the patient to come here. Uh, it can be all sorts of things. So this is the behavior screen. So for example, if you look at the part that says, were any restraints utilized during this admission, that area is what they fill out during the acute care admission. So if the answer is going to be no, and below it, the patient was not on a one-to-one, -one, which means they're on a one-to-one -one sitter for either just at bedtime or for 24 hours a day, we're going to assess together what kind of safety measures are needed for the patient. Um, of course, we want to do the least invasive measures for the patient and also keep the patient safe from whatever they need to be safe from, like a fall, if they've had multiple falls, we'll always discuss that. The Morse code is included when they come here. Um, also at the top of the page, you'll see the patient's name will be there, the nurse liaison will put their name, the patient's diagnosis, what hospital they're coming from, the age of the patient. Um, it doesn't always mean if somebody's 96 years old, they could be alert and orientated. So um, we'll assess what kind of needs they have. We have many devices here that we use for the behavior patients, uh, depending on what they need. Um, and then if you look at the bottom of the behavior screen, this is the recommendation from the nurse liaison. So they may want the patient just for 24 hours to be on a one-to-one -one or two-to-one, which means two patients to one aid um, for 24 hours. But as I said, we attempt everything we can to avoid that if we can use our safety measures. So we may use other measures. Um, and this whole thing will be filled out with comments to the right of anything the liaison feels is necessary. Upon this conversation, I also try and get the liaison to go see the patient for themselves because sometimes the nurse's notes um, will not give us the information we need um, and possibly the patient has improved. So let's say their one-to-one -one observation was discontinued three days ago because the patient is cognitively better, we may not need to put them on a one-to-one -one observation when they get here. Um, so as I said, we assess for what kind of safety devices. Safety devices are not restraints. They're just devices to keep the patient safe. Um, we may utilize a Q15 rounding, which means the patient is usually near the nurse's station. We'll have a bed for them near the nurse's station, and either the aide or the nurse will round on them every 15 minutes. Um, so that work is very effective here. Um, also, if they should need a one-to-one -one observation, we do utilize that, or an enclosure bed. So once the patient is admitted, we will use the proper safety mechanisms for the patients that are put into place, and then they become part of the behavioral team, which Christina and I are part of.
Um, and we always include a fall <coughs> prevention strategy because, of course, as any place, we want to prevent the patient from falling. Um, and keep in mind, although the stroke patient had this incident, there are always pre-existing conditions that could lead to this. For example, we may have a patient who already had dementia and came to us after his stroke or, or um, Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, which may lead to behavior issues as well. So on my floor, we have a safety wing. It's a lockdown unit. So um, that area, which is really pretty much, if you saw it, 219 to 223, those are the room numbers, that is an area that we keep most of the safety patients. So if the nurse has that area, we try and give them a few less, less patients because they are very difficult patients most of the time. Um, and it also keeps everybody in one area. And it's also very close to the nurse's station. Um, and because it's a lockdown unit, I will be showing you in a little while, um, we uh, utilize wonder guards for that unit. Uh, also, once we assess the patient, we may assess them for a program we have here called the TOP program, which is the Therapeutic Observation Program. Uh, it's, very, it's a wonderful program. Uh, we have a nursing rehab aide and a therapy nursing rehab aide in the room. Uh, they go there for extra activities. So they do things with the patients uh, such as um, they may just go up there for meals because they need extra attention while they're eating. Or they may go up there for activities. They make t-shirts up there with the patients. They draw with them. They have a big screen TV. They really enjoy it and the families appreciate it very much as well. We also have weekly behavior rounds that we do. So we have an intense weekly meeting where um, Christina and I and the team meet to discuss each and every patient. So whether they're on a one-to-one -one observation or whether they're um, on an enclosure bed or any sort of safety devices, how we can begin weaning them or increasing their safety mechanisms, whatever it need be. And we also do daily supervision rounds. So we round on the patients every day to ensure they're safe and they have the proper safety mechanisms. So then we create the behavior plan. All right. So the patient has been identified as having a behavioral issue. Charlotte for the first night um, and the nurses have put into place some kind of safety measure to get us through that first night. Then they come to us in the morning for therapy. Um, so we have a, a better idea of what this patient is presenting and like, and now we need to make a behavior plan. So how do you make a behavior plan? Um, each of these plans is individualized to each patient, of course. Um, the first thing that you wanna do when you're creating a behavior plan is identify what are the specific behaviors that we're seeing. Um, so going back to that agitated behavior scale, that can help really guide us um, to, to determine what it is that we're seeing. So, you know, in that video, we, you guys were great, you know, that this patient was impulsive, his judgment was impaired, low frustration tolerance, right? So those would be our behaviors. Um, the next thing that we're gonna look at are what are the triggers? So a trigger is something that initiates the patient's behavior or intensifies the behavior. Um, triggers can be both 
either internal or external or both. So something external would be something um, environmental. Um, and the key is here is that we're really looking at what is influencing the behavior. So another way to look at it. These are my kids, and they are crying, as kids often do. Um, so I'm not trying to say that our patients are children, um, but when a child is crying and they can't express themselves for either a communication issue or you know, because of cognitive reasons, um, what do we do, right? We go down the list. Um, are they hungry? Are they tired? Do they need a diaper change? Um, are they overstimulated? So um, it's just another way to look at like how we can um, come up with what are the triggers here, what is um, causing the behaviors or the crying. Um, so the ABC method is a very basic method of behavior modification. Um, it can and should be used by everyone. So this is something that we can go over with our support staff, um, with family. And the main idea is to really get us to push at, again, what is influencing the behavior? Is it something environmental? Is it something personal? Um, is it situational? Um, what is causing the behavior here? So the A for antecedent, that's what's prior to or surrounding the behavior. So that's the trigger. The B is the behavior, which we discussed. And then the C is the consequence. So what is the outcome of the behavior? Um, so I'm going to give you an example. And this is an actual patient, because um, you can't make some of this stuff up. Um, but uh, I had a patient who, um, in the mornings, I'd be in his room and be working on ADLs with him. So we'd be focusing on getting dressed and grooming. And in his room, we wouldn't be having any issues. And then housekeeping would come in and empty his trash can. and. I mean, wouldn't say a word to the patient, but literally would just empty his trash can. And then the, the patient would um, then start yelling and kicking and spitting and screaming and um, carrying on. And it was really difficult for me to get him back on track with his ADLs. And in fact, it really was hard to get him to participate in therapy for the rest of the morning. It was hard to get him down to the gym. It was hard to get him to calm down. Um, now, so this is a pretty straightforward example, and it, it is a, a true example. But so in this situation, what would the A be? So the antecedent or the um, trigger? Yeah, housekeeping. So I don't know if it was the housekeeper, if it was the trash, whatever it was, but whatever was happening when the housekeeper came in and emptied his trash, that was the trigger for this patient. And what were his behaviors? Kicking, yelling, spitting, yeah, carrying on. And what was the consequence of these behaviors? Right, yeah, we had a hard time getting him back participating. Um, okay, so now that we know this, what would your suggestion be for a plan? Do not let anybody walk in and distract your patient during their treatment. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, we, for this, yeah, go ahead. Also schedule the housekeeping to be going to his room when he's not around, when he's in therapy. And right, yeah, and so that's what we did. And so we said, you know, Fred, you can't come in here and empty the trash when I'm doing my ADL. Um, it's ruining my session, and it's really affecting the patient. So, I mean, we did that, and it worked. So, I mean, this is, again, a very basic, straightforward example, but, I mean, stuff like this happens. Um, so, again, just looking at each of the behaviors and what specifically is, is triggering each one. Okay, so now we're going to talk a little... Oh, typo. Uh, what are we going <laughs> to... We're going to talk a little bit more about... Um, Triggers. So what can you guys come up with in terms of what do you think would be a common internal trigger for our patients, our stroke patients? Pain, I heard. Yep, pain. 
Hunger. You guys are awesome. Pain, fatigue, hunger. Yeah. Bathroom, did you say? Is that what you said? Number yeah. one. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? You guys are good. Good. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. You know what? I, we need to add that to the list. Yes. Depression. Depression. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah. So, pain, fatigue, and hunger. We talked about before. Our patients oftentimes have a difficult time um, communicating their basic wants and needs. Um, disorientation, confusion, and memory impairments. Obviously, a lot of our patients have these cognitive deficits, and imagine how scary it is. You're disoriented. You don't know where you are. You don't know who these people are around you. You know, first thing in the morning, someone comes in, and they're trying to get you undressed. They're trying to get you out of bed. This can definitely be a trigger for our patients. Lack of insight. I'm sure you guys have seen some of our patients, like we talked about, the right hemisphere um, in particular. These patients really lack insight into their deficits. They don't think that there's anything that they need to work on. You know, no balance issues. They're completely fine. Um, so a lot of times when trying to redirect or keep a patient safe, if they have lack of insight, this can really be a trigger for them as well. Communication deficits. We talked about communicating basic wants and needs, but not only that, um, just trying to get your point across, trying to have a conversation with someone can be extremely frustrating if you have aphasia. Um, and in addition to that, understanding what's being asked of you. Um, you know, sometimes we speak to our patients in ways and they don't understand what we're saying and that can be frustrating as well. Disturbed sleep-wake cycle. We are, um, we do monitor that here and a lot of our patients do have difficulty sleeping. They're either not sleeping or they're kind of um, waking up a lot throughout the night um, and then what do we do during the day right so they're tired during the day because they haven't slept at night and we're getting them up and we're dragging them to three hours of therapy and we're you know they have a ton of stuff going on during the day so I mean I know when I am not sleeping I'm not having a great day the next day and it's the same with our patients so that can really be a trigger um, for patients too and this and these ones we see most often probably here so how can we manage what is what can we do to help address these issues, these internal triggers. Um, for pain, um, obviously medication as needed. If we notice that a patient is um, having unmet um, needs for pain, following up with the doctor, is there something that we need to change? Um, timing of medications before therapy, um, we can look at that. Different modalities, what works best for each patient. Again, all individualized, ice, heat, um, pressure relief, positioning, do they need a different chair, do they need a special cushion, do they need a different mattress. Um, for memory, um, oftentimes, I'd say most times, frequently trying to reorient the patient is helpful. I'd say that with the exception of the late stages of dementia, we kind of want to avoid that. Um, so frequent reorientation. Um, environmental cues, is there something we can give to the patient, a memory book, um, a basic simple sign that tells them where they are um, may be helpful. Awareness, that's a little bit trickier and um, harder to address. Um, in general, you want to avoid arguing, so you don't want to get into a back and forth and tell the patient, no, you can't do this. Um, you want to just calmly try to redirect them. Uh, it is something that we do try to address from a therapy and um, either speech or um, OT in terms of the cognitive therapy. What we do a lot of times to try to address awareness 
is we can do some uh, rating scales. So ask the patient prior to um, having them do something, rate yourself, how do you think you're going to do with this? Um, have them do it, and then again a rating scale at the end of the activity um, to see if there's any discrepancy there, just to try to increase their awareness. So kind of like a, almost like a planned failure kind of a thing. Um, for communication, using gestures, nonverbal body language. Um, if you guys work with a speech therapist, they might be able to give you a little more insight as to like specifically what kind of um, communication strategies to use for each patient. Um, but in general, just using um, you know gestures or pantomime. Before I move on, so for communication, you really want to um, make sure that you're not putting the patient's communication deficit on them. So you want to make sure that they're under that that what they're getting is that it's that you're not understanding, that it's not them that has, you know, because they aren't communicating properly that they are the issue, that it's your issue that you can't understand what they're saying. Um, and then for sleep, you may want to speak to um, Doc about if there's anything needed in terms of medical intervention. Do they need a little sleep aid? Um, the thing that we can do from a therapy standpoint is you know, a lot of times I go into patient's room and it's the middle of the day and the shades are drawn and they're in bed and it's dark and you know maybe we can do a little bit better of a job if, if it's appropriate to stimulate the patient during the day, get them out of bed, keep them engaged during the day so when it comes to nighttime that maybe they're you know, more tired and ready for bed. How about external triggers, environmental things? Noise. I just can't hear you guys say a little louder. Noise, temperature. Yeah. You know, people coming in and out that they don't know. Yeah. Yeah, you guys are awesome. Perfect. So needle sticks sometimes when they get tested at 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> yes, exactly. Perfect. Um, perfect. So overstimulation, um, noise, like you said, uh, lights, clutter, um, you know, visitors, like you said. Um, another big one for overstimulation is um, how we're speaking to the patients. So, um, you know, our patients, like we, you know, they have these issues. Their their brains aren't working as as ours are. So they have a really hard time. Um, either filtering out these distractions. So, um, for example, you just flipped your um, paper right there, right? So that, to our patients, that would be like a fire alarm going off. That little thing that you just did is so distracting to them. So just, again, keeping that in mind um, in terms of, you know, where they are and, and what's going on around them. Um, also, you know, making sure that we're speaking to them um, and giving them, we're giving them tons of commands and tons of things all at once. That's a lot for them to process. Um, medical interventions, like you said, how many times a day are we drawing blood? Are we checking vitals? Um, you know, these things are necessary, but they certainly can be a trigger for our patients. Frustrating tasks. So things are now really difficult for these folks and, um, you know, something as simple as even feeding yourself or doing a simple grooming task or standing or walking, it's hard now and that can be really frustrating too. So that is oftentimes a trigger. Change in environment or structure. 
You can ask Charlotte, the first night here is usually a rough one for our patients. Um, it's a new place, it's new people, there's a new schedule, a lot of new changes. And then restraints um, are oftentimes a um, trigger. Did you, does anyone use restraints at your, do you use restraints at your hospitals? Yeah. Okay. Lap belts? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll get into that a little bit more. So how can we manage um, external triggers? For the overstimulation piece, um, reducing noise, educating family on um, visitors, so maybe only allow you know one or two visitors at a time. Again, depending on each of the, the patient, you're going to assess clutter, you know, removing clutter from their rooms. We have um, Charlotte spoke about our safety wing. We try to keep that um, a low stim uh, wing, so we keep the doors closed to that unit. Um, we make sure that it's not noisy, um, that there's not a lot of traffic. It's further away from the elevator. Um, communication in terms of um, in terms of like the verbosity or the the overstimulation that we're we're doing when we're communicating with them. Just make sure that you are communicating slowly and simply give one step at a time um, and give them time to process and respond before you're invading their personal space. So before we're saying, like, oh, Mrs. Jones, I'm going to get you dressed, I'm going to get you out of bed, and you're already touching her and moving her, keep it slow and simple and give her time before you're touching. Um, in terms of medical intervention, so that's another one that's a little bit trickier because, I mean, there's orders. Patients need certain medications. They need blood draws. They need labs drawn. Um, so um, as much as we can be flexible with that. Um, so, for example, if I just receive a patient and I get a handoff from the nurse and they had just taken their blood pressure, it's not really necessary for me to take that again unless there's, like, an actual issue going on. Um, and especially if this is something that agitates the patient, just communicate with your, um, your team. Um, we had a, another patient who, um, like she said, you know, was woken up daily at 5.30 for medication, whatever it is that he needed. It was, that was the order written. It was early in the morning. I don't know if it was 5.30, 6, whatever, yeah. in the morning. And his trigger was being woken up in the morning, um, which we were able to identify. So we ended up speaking to the doctor who determined that this particular medication wasn't necessary at this time, so we changed it to later, and it was a successful um, change for him. So he woke up on his own and didn't need to be woken up and that really helped us um, in terms of managing his behavior in the mornings. In terms of demands and frustrating um, demands, um, when you're working with the patients you, you, it's really important that you find a just right challenge. Um, if you see a patient starting to become frustrated or starting to escalate, you want to back off. It's not worth it to keep pushing and forcing them to complete something if it's going to lead to a behavioral um, issue. Um, so you want to just be real careful with that. Um, it's completely appropriate to just do a timeout if you see them, if it is starting to escalate. We do it often, we call it toots, timeout on the spot, um, where we just kind of let them de-escalate. I mean, you can walk away, you can just, you know, give them something else to shift off of whatever it is that you are working on, um, and then oftentimes you can go back and revisit. Um, for these patients, you want to try to limit change in structure, so this isn't the patient that you want to be changing their room often. Um, try to keep a consistent team if you can. Um, and then for restraint alternatives, always want to try these alternative alternatives prior to um, using a restraint. 
Um, and then I think you know Charlotte is going to get into next what restraints that we use and what alternatives that we use um, instead of restraints. Okay. So um, these are restraints that require a physician's order. Oh, sorry. Um, we always want to start with the least restrictive and then move up just like you do in diagnostic testing. You start with the least invasive to the most invasive. So it's the same way on a behavior management point of view. Well, these happen to be restraints that we do need a doctor's order for. Um, does anybody utilize enclosure beds in their facility? Um, it's not as common in acute care. Uh, it's a bed that looks a little bit like a netting I'm going to show you a picture in a minute, um, and it unzips on both sides. So the patient has no way of getting out and they can't fall from it. So it's a big, big, um, it's a big uh, help for anybody that has a fall prevention, that needs a fall prevention strategy. Uh, the, the bed goes quite low. Um, what precludes a patient from going in an enclosure bed, of course, is somebody with claustrophobia. Anybody who needs a restraint because they're pulling or tugging at something. So if a patient has a trach and they're constantly tugging at the trach and that's their main trigger and that's their issue, we're not going to put them in an enclosure bed. For that kind of a patient, we may use something like mitts. Anybody use mitts in their facility? Yes? Great. Okay, so we could use maybe one mitt or two mitt, depending on the patient. If the patient has uh, left-sided weakness, they can't move their left arm, they're only touching with their right arm, then we're going to put a mitt just on the right hand. But needless to say, you still need a doctor's order, which needs to be renewed every 24 hours. Also, um, let's say the patient is pulling at their peg. We, util we utilize um, abdominal binders to prevent the patient from touching the peg. Let's say that's something that the patient is doing all the time or pulling at their Foley catheter. Let's say um, they can't really use their hands. We may use a posy sleeve. Most facilities have that. This is a posy sleeve. Does anybody use utilize posy sleeves? Yeah, they're great, right? So this is not a restraint. Why is it not a restraint? This, this is a restraint, excuse me. This is a restraint. So this also, you would think, is not a restraint, but it is. It, it precludes the patient from moving their arm. So they need a doctor's order for that as well. Then we have uh, a rear locking seatbelt. I'll be demonstrating all this in a moment. Uh, that is also a restraint because the patient can't undo it himself. And um, this is actually years ago, many moons ago when I first started becoming a nurse, four side rails up was not a restraint, but it is now. Um, so three side rails up is not a restraint on the bed, but four side rails is, and we do need a doctor's order for that. So this is an enclosure bed. 
It's very effective for some of the patients, very effective. Um, doesn't mean they'll be on the bed forever. As the behavior team does their rounds, we assess whether or not the patient needs it. I had a patient last week that was on an enclosure bed. Um, he was a high fall risk. Uh, the nurse liaison and I discussed it and we ordered the enclosure bed upon his arrival. He went in the bed, he loved it. He didn't want to get out. <laughs> so that was a bit of a problem because we want him to get out and do his therapy. So, um, so obviously he's not impulsive, he's not trying to get out of bed. This was just something as a fall prevention for him. So the one night before we discharge the enclosure bed, we leave both sides, as you can see, both sides zip on both sides of the patient. So we'll leave both sides open on top of the bed for the night and we'll assess whether or not the patient was climbing or trying to get out of bed. And of course, while they're on the enclosure bed, they have to be on a strict Q15. They have to be monitored very, very often. Um, another precluding factor may be oxygen. Um, as I said, if they have any sort of lines, that is not a good choice, the enclosure bed. Skin issues. So if the patient has skin issues and has to go on an air mattress, this does not fit an air mattress. They, the company does have um, specialty mattresses for the enclosure bed, but if somebody has like a stage four sacral decubiti, they're not going in an enclosure bed. They might need a clinitron bed or an air mattress or something of that nature. Okay, does anybody would like to volunteer to be restrained? <laughs> you want to volunteer? Okay. <laughs> okay, so since I have this microphone, Christina will um, do the demonstration. Okay, first we're going to start with, with safety devices. So as I said, safety devices versus restraints. Safety devices do not require a physician's order. They can be opened up by the patient themselves. So we want to start with the least invasive first. So this is an alarm that comes in many different companies, so I don't want to say the name we use. Okay, there you go. I didn't say it. You guys did. So we're going to attach this. Okay, so she could have a regular wheelchair belt as well, the belt that comes with the wheelchair. But we also utilize wheelchair alarms. So let's say she's very, very impulsive, um, won't keep the seatbelt on. She's not looking here. So we can keep that on her. But she got up by herself. Go ahead, get up. So what happens is the long. So it'll alert us. Um, but we use, that, we use that in the bed as well. We have so many alarms in the bed. Then the wheelchair alarm. Which our, um, our wheelchair person places on the wheelchair for us. So this isn't tight right now, but... As you can see, she can remove it herself. 
and it's just another second to give us so that we can possibly prevent a fall. Okay, and then this is also a safety device. I'm, some of you said you use these omni belts, lap belts. So this is not a restraint because again, this closes in the front, in the bed. So, right, but the patient can remove it. So it's in the front, so it's not a restraint. So as I said, anything you can use that's not a restraint, you want to do that first. I mean, it's still, you know this, you have to, sometimes you have to go to the physician and say, hey, you have to renew the restraint, it's two o'clock, please renew the restraint. Not just that, but you want to be able to do the least restrictive device. Okay, so we also use this. Does anybody know what this is? What is it? It's for the bed. Um, so it's a sensor for the bed. So if you happen to have an older bed that doesn't have a bed alarm, this is a great option. You can put it on underneath the sheets, attached to the posy sitter, and when the patient moves, it'll alarm. And as we said, the, the posy sleeve and the mitts are other options that are restraints. This is another safety device that's a non-restraint device. I love this one. So this is a wraparound. Christina will demonstrate. They come in different sizes. So this is probably too big for her. Okay, as you can see, she can take this off herself because it's in the front. It's a little big for her. But it's a little big. So uh, now try and get out. Of, try and get out. <laughs> okay? But if she was impulsive and that was what she did and she had good movement in her arm, she may do this. But it's still, it's not as easy to do as you think. This is good when if the patient is not cognitively... Um, intact and they don't really take those steps to take I mean it's a good one if they can't figure out exactly or it takes them longer to figure out and it gives you more time to respond right so cuz cuz you're with this patient and you can see oh they're starting to fidget here they're starting to move this up so that is a very very good option it also comes without the shoulder parts you have the ones that are just wrap around like this I, I do like the shoulder ones I have to tell you Okay. Right. With Velcro. Yes. And they close in the front. That's perfect. Okay. So I don't know if anybody utilizes um, rear locking seat belts, but this is also an option. So because this. If you were to use. Uh huh. Let's say the mittens. Right. With the self-releasing belt. Even we though, probably do. Even though the self-releasing belt is in the front, is that technically considered even? Yes, because yes. I'm using the mittens. It's a restraint. 
Not the front belt, only the mitts. Right, but because the mitts, then would you need a doctor's Yes, order? you do. Mm -hmm. You do. Just for the mitts. Just for the mitts. Because we utilize, just because a patient has mitts, doesn't mean I'm not going to use an Omni belt, a wheelchair alarm, but a low bed with them. You can. I've had people bite them off. No, I'm meaning that you push a button and it just opens up or something. I've never seen Are that. They're Velcro. They're Velcro. Yes. Yes. Correct. It becomes a restraint. So even the self-releasing, if they're not physically capable of taking that off, it is a restraint at that point. I do see your point, but because it's in the front, and I understand what you're saying, it's still not considered that it... Well, if they're not capable of self-releasing, then they probably don't need it. They probably don't need the safety device. Yeah. If it's, if, excuse me? Go ahead. Okay, so this is the rear locking seatbelt. So this is definitely a restraint. It um, crisscrosses in the back and it's attached to the ANSI tips in the back of the wheelchair. So try and stand up. It's extremely effective. The, pa the patient cannot get up from this. Um, that's pretty much. Any other questions on restraints? As I said before, of course, We'd rather not use anything, but because we're on the traumatic brain injury unit and we do have patients that are confused, as you all know, unfortunately, um, we have to keep them safe and we try and use our best practice to do that. Okay, these are all the devices we talked about the wheelchair alarm, the posy, the wraparound device, the Omni belt. We also utilize floor mats. So um, if the, we have beds that go extremely low um, and if the patient should roll out of the bed, at least we have the floor mats there and it prevents an injury at night. Uh, bed alarm, of course, is always utilized and um, the wonder guard. I just, that was the last thing we had to show you. Okay, so this is utilized on my floor because as I said, it's a lockdown unit. So we have um, a device by the elevator and by the staircases 
if we have a wandering patient that would like to escape, you've had that, right? I knew that. Um, we will put a wonder guard on the patient. The problem is some of these really mobile, confused patients take this off. They don't like it. So sometimes we have to put it on their ankle. I've had a patient that wouldn't leave it on, who was on a one-to-one -one observation. I had the aide carry it in her, whatever aid they had would carry it with them. And it also stops the elevators from moving. So, and this can go right on your wrist or your ankle or whatever. And you can uh, change the size on this. Uh, what else? Let's see. Okay, so some of the pharmacological considerations, I'm gonna go through this fast because we're running out of time. There's no magic pill for the patients um, to get them cognitively better. Sometimes it's just time, it's sometimes it's their pre-existing dementia, we don't know. Um, opioids, if the patient has pain, uh, as I said before, at least invasive to most, so if we can use Tylenol or lidocaine patches or anything of that sort, we prefer that. Um, benzodiazepines are not the best choice usually in the elderly. Uh, they have a lot of side effects and they're very hard to come off of if you've been on it long-term. Seizure medication, the beers list, which allows us to see um, which medications are not appropriate in the older adults. Um, some of the medications that we utilize, as Christina said, we very much utilize the sleep-wake cycle. I don't know if anybody uses, anybody works night shifts. They have a special assessment tool to assess the patient's sleep. It's very important on the behavioral team because that could be the only reason they're agitated because they're not sleeping. So we may give melatonin, trazodone, remeron, any of those agents to help the patient sleep. Um, I had a patient a couple weeks ago that was being given melatonin at like six o'clock at night. He's not gonna sleep, even though it takes a little while to kick in, I don't go to sleep at eight o'clock. I don't go to sleep at six o'clock at night. Um, so we decided to ask the physician if we could give it a little bit later and that was very helpful. Um, then once they're sleeping, we have to wake them up during the day. So we give them medications for attention, uh, such as amantadine, Ritalin, uh, bromocriptine, Aricept and Exelon are used in brain injury as well as um, for dementia and Alzheimer's. Uh, someone talked about depression as being a trigger, somebody over here. Um, sometimes a depression medication may be helpful, such as an SSRI, uh, Effexor, Zoloft, Lexapro, Buspar. Um, if somebody has a drug issue and had a stroke afterwards, Buspar is always effective for cocaine, in case you guys didn't know that. Um, restlessness. Um, gabapentin is not only used for neuropathic pain, but we do use it for anxiety and propranolol as well. Um, other medications that we use for agitation and combativeness could be Risperdal, Seroquel, Olanzapine, Ativan. We try not to use that here at Kessler as much. Um, occasionally, occasionally when we have a very combative, aggressive patient, we may use an intramuscular Ativan, but mostly we give these medications by mouth. 
it's not forwarding. Okay. All right. Here's our first case study. So Mrs. Smith, she's a 67-year-old female admitted to us, status post-stroke with resulting right hemiparesis. She's aphasic and unable to verbalize her needs. When a male RA assists her in the morning with her ADLs, she screams and becomes physically combative. She's fallen once at Kessler and continues to try to get up from her chair despite her physical limitations. So let's start by looking at, we're going to create a, a plan for her. Um, what behaviors are we seeing? Anybody? I can't hear you guys. Yeah, she's combative. She's hitting. She's screaming. What else was she? She's, she's getting up. Yeah, she's getting up. Yeah. She has a male RA. We may want to we're not, that Wait, we're not there yet. <laughs> we're not there yet. <laughs> okay. Uh, so the triggers. The, what, what, what do you think? The male. And what else? Right, she's aphasic. She can't communicate her needs. Uh, we don't know. She might not even be impulsive. She might just be getting up because she has an unmet need. We don't know. Um, but certainly um, she's, you know, she's not able to express herself, and this male RA is a trigger. Um, so what plan can we, would you think we could initiate going forward? I'm sorry? Right. Yeah. So let's try a female aid. What can we do? She's getting up without assist. She's unable to express herself. Yeah. Yeah, so definitely, I, I mean, it, we're, we can definitely try to anticipate her needs, make sure everything is within reach. Um, time voiding is something that we do for these patients. Um, even if they say they don't have to go to the bathroom, a lot of times the nurses will just take them over, the aides will just take them over. Um, what about restraint alternative? Well, what would you think, a restraint or an alternative for this patient? An alternative, yeah. And what would you recommend? Say it again. A sitter, a sitter, yeah, a, a, some kind of alarm, um, probably one in the bed, probably one in the chair, um, and um, probably a Q15, like we mentioned before. Good. I think we have to, yeah. Last one. Okay, last one. Mr. Jones is a 59-year-old uh, male patient, status post-ruptured aneurysm. He's ambulating with close supervision, however, is impulsive and bumps into objects on the, on the left when he walks. He's extremely distractible, wanders around the unit, and sometimes into other patients' rooms. He has, I know you've all had somebody like that. He has also frequently attempts to leave the building and yells at the staff for keeping him locked up in jail when they try to redirect him. So what is his trigger? What, what's going on with this guy? Anybody? Right? So he, he ambulates well, this gentleman, correct? So. Mm -hmm. is poor. Um, he seems to be confused, right? He thinks he's in jail, um, disoriented. So what can we do for this gentleman to ensure he's safe? Perfect. What else? Also have 
him to where he is. Um, I like that. Have a little board and you know that will remind him where he is. Right. Yeah. So. Um, also, he bumps into objects on the left side, so we're going to put his stuff on the right side. Um, we can put, uh, sometimes, especially this guy's wandering, so he's kind of all over the unit, mm -hmm. so you might want to put something outside of his bed on top uh, of his door, um, a sign that would alert him, keeping familiar things in his room, things that are comforting Pictures. to him. He's um, distractible, so low stim, he'd likely be in our safety wing. Um, and one more question, do you guys, would you restrain this guy? What, what would you do in terms of... Somebody yeah. said Wonder Guard. That's perfect, of course. Do you have video monitoring or anything like that? No. Mm -mm. No. We would likely put this person on a, um, on a supervision to start uh, with an aid. Okay. Thank you, guys. For more information about Kessler Foundation and its researchers, go to KesslerFoundation.org. That is K-E-S-S-L-E-R-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N dot org. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter.